The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Last October, Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey shook the sports world with a tweet. It said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Pretty simple. Not controversial. At least not in the United States. But China was offended. They cut off all economic ties with the Rockets and demanded an apology from the National Basketball Association. And they got one. China uses its economic clout to shape the public discourse in business, academia, politics, and even sports. Its authoritarian impulse has no boundaries. Even citizens of liberal democracies are subject to its influence. This is the third part of liberalism, capitalism, communism, about the global ascendance of China. My conversation with Marika Olberg, a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, explores how the Communist Party of China extends its influence beyond its borders. She recently authored the book, Hidden Hand, exposing how the Chinese Communist Party is reshaping the world, along with Clive Hamilton. They write in the opening lines of the first chapter, the Chinese Communist Party is determined to transform the international order to shape the world in its own image, without a shot being fired. China is imagined as a powerful authoritarian state. Francis Fukuyama has described it as a strong state with weak rule of law. I disagree. China is a weak state with a very strong party. Xi Jinping is described as the president of China, but his real power comes from his role as the chairman of the Communist Party. The power of the CCP is neither subtle nor indirect. For example, the military is not even a part of the government. It's a branch of the CCP. China's global ascendance is the ascendance of China's Communist Party. It doesn't matter whether the CCP is committed to Marxism or communism. The reality is it has always been authoritarian, and it has never been supportive of liberalism nor democracy. Recently, The Economist observed the achievement of the Trump administration was to recognize the authoritarian threat from China. The task of the Biden administration will be to work out what to do about it. There is a bipartisan consensus in the U.S. that China represents a threat to America. Something must be done. We just need to figure out what that something is. Unfortunately, there is no time to waste. So, 
let's get down to business. Here is my conversation with Marika Olberg. Marika Olberg, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. I love how your book places the focus onto the Chinese Communist Party because it's easy for that institution to get lost when we talk about China within international relations. And I, I think it's so important because so much of China is driven through the Communist Party itself. As we start out, I want to talk about the Communist Party of China, the CCP's international ambitions. What are the goals of the CCP? From a global perspective, right. We wanted to focus on the party in the book because it gets written out of the picture quite often with of the obvious desire to normalize the way that the Chinese state functions and to fit it into something that we're familiar with and to use the names of the institutions that we're familiar with. And that to, to us is problematic because it then starts overlooking the motives of the party, which really drive a lot of what China, quote unquote, does internationally, as as you pointed out. Now, what does what does the party itself want? I mean, at the most basic sense, it wants to stay in power. I think that is the overriding motivation for basically every action that you see. You can you can reduce it to the party wanting to stay in power. Of course, it wants economic growth so that it can stay in power. It wants international legitimacy. It wants to be recognized by foreigners as a legitimate actor so that it can better sell this at home to its own people to say, look, everybody around the world accepts that we are the best government for China. So who are you, dissident, to disagree with us? Who are you, group organizing against us, to disagree with that? It wants to be able to set the tone of international debates so that actually the quote-unquote Chinese model that it promotes at home gets more recognition and that internationally people look at China and say, well, you know, democracies were nice in the 20th century and maybe they had their own role, but really it's this type of government that is fully equipped to deal with the challenges of the 21st century. Now, people used to laugh at that and say, well, nobody's ever going to accept that. And to some degree, I think that still remains true, but I think we shouldn't underestimate it. And especially during the, the COVID pandemic, the party has really used this, those selling points of saying, you know, we were able to deal with these challenges. Now look at all these democracies struggling and failing, which is of course also wrong because there are a lot of democracies like Taiwan, like New Zealand, like Australia, like Japan and Korea, you can debate that have dealt with it quite well. But, but those selling points and getting this international recognition in order to buttress what it calls its own ideological security at home. That is the key behind a lot of what we're seeing internationally. There was a recent piece in the Journal of Democracy by uh, Nadezh Roland about China's pandemic power play. He says Beijing's behavior stems from a deep sense of fear. Ambition and insecurity consistently go hand in hand as drivers of China's external behavior. Absolutely. And it's this weird contradiction between those, you know, grandiose visions of the Chinese revival and China returning to the place in the world that it is owed. That is, you know, that sounds very confident and sounds like, you know, this is all driven by this idea of Chinese grandeur. That, But then again, the key factor, in, in, in my opinion, is still the underlying fear 
that if you can't deliver that, if you cannot make this happen and gain international recognition, that then your legitimacy at home suffers, and then you might actually get kicked out. And the, the, the driving factor here is wanting to stay in power and actually fearing not being in power. If you look at some of the training that you would get for cadres or some of the some of the internal documentaries the party produces, some of the handbooks it produces, a lot of that really points to the example of like, you know, you have the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, you have Romania, as a particularly horrible example of what can happen to you if you let go of this power and then get ousted. The party tries to tell its cadres, you know, you have to take this seriously. And if you get kicked out, you don't just get voted out. You lose a lot, possibly your life. So there's really a lot of that going on in the background. And it's, it's not talked about as much as, I guess, the ambitious side. But I think as a driving factor, it's actually more important. I feel like the CCP is sometimes underplayed because it doesn't feel communist anymore with the reforms from Deng Xiaoping. Can you explain a little bit about how Marxism or even communism continues to fit into the ideology of the CCP now? I think in the starting in the 80s and then continuing into the 90s and for the longest time, the main take was, well, they only pay lip service to their ideology, but really China is this capitalist country or is this aspiring capitalist country. And I, you can make you can make a case for that. And there's a good reason why the international Marxists, like actual Marxists are quite divided about China. Like there's some, there's some that actually say, hey, we're on board with what China is doing because they're the most progressive force out there. And then there are like other Marxists who look at China and are um, naturally and understandably quite suspicious of what is actually going on in terms of, in terms of actual Marxism. But, but what the Communist Party of China has done and what I think you could say it has done well is how it has appropriated communism and Marxism as something that is not a fixed set of ideas. So from the beginning, when the ideology entered China, the way it was interpreted was always we have to do two things. We can't just accept things at face value. We have to adapt it to our local circumstances and we have to adapt it to the needs of the times. So this Marxism isn't a set of a set of books that we have to stick by has always been in there. And that's really been made use of since the 80s. And, and, and right now, the, the Communist Party of China basically says, look, we're the Communist Party of China. We're one of the few communist parties left in the world. We're the biggest one left in the world. So we decide what Marxism and what communism is. We are basically the most up-to-date, the most modern and the most appropriate version of Marxism and communism that's out there. And if that happens to include some stuff that is more you know, traditionally associated with other systems, then so be it. Before Xi Jinping came to power, it was often enough not to openly challenge. Like if you, you know you sit through your party study session and you don't challenge what's being said, I feel like what's changing is now you have to actually reaffirm what has been said, and you have to reaffirm your commitment, and you have to actively say that you know you believe in this stuff and you think it's good. And the idea is, of course, if many people say it and if many people commit to it, and if it is not challenged at all, then in some way, whether people actually believe in it or not, becomes less and less relevant. Um, and that is what I've seen under Xi Jinping, this renewed commitment to getting people to actively affirm what the party is telling them and to repeat it and to 
openly come out and, and, and swear their loyalty to the party. And, and, th and that's really the main difference that we're seeing to before, not so much the content um, itself. A lot of the major figures that Westerners see within China are the business executives like Jack Ma, who are very supportive of capitalist ideas. But there are a lot of people within China within the CCP especially, that are very far on the left. And China has a lot more state-owned enterprises than I think people recognize sometimes. People talk about, about China being a very liberalized capitalist country because it's had so much economic growth, but there's a lot of socialism that remains in China to this day. Absolutely, I agree. State-owned enterprises are around, no, it doesn't matter how often, you know, the United States pushes China. I mean, you can throw so many tariffs off that at them. It doesn't matter how, how often the European Union says, pretty please reform your economy. That's not going to change. These companies are going to stick around and they're going to keep playing a role in China. So these elements are still there and they play an important role. Chris Walker over at the National Endowment for Democracy has used a term called the sharp power to discuss how China influences the world. Can you explain a little bit about how China's use of sharp power differentiates from the United States' use of soft power? It's actually quite an apt distinction because what the Chinese Communist Party does in, in many ways is quite different. It can't really recreate soft power. It had this obsession, especially under the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao in that period, to actually create sources of soft power to make Chinese culture more attractive so that foreigners want to align with that automatically and recognize the greatness of Chinese power. Now, it's very difficult to create that top down to say as a government or as a communist party, here's what's attractive about our culture. Now, you know, make that popular and make foreigners accepted. So the model of trying to influence people abroad is really quite different. The model that the CCP has adapted. Of course, they still want Chinese culture to be popular, but the main model here is you do two things. One is you really do a lot of outreach at every single level. If you look at how many people are involved in local diplomacy in China and how many people are involved in local diplomacy in, in most Western countries, there's a huge discrepancy. You expand energy into party-to-party -party diplomacy. You go to the grassroots level, you know, do exchange with civil society, which of course, unfortunately, these days often turns out not to be what they call people to people exchanges, but party to people exchanges, because the departments and the, the organizations that come over here are party led, even though they would mask themselves often as grassroots or civil society organizations. And you have a lot of those ties beyond just the official ties. And that per se is not particularly problematic. I mean, you can have those exchanges. And even if it's the party driving it, as long as you know that, which unfortunately, many people don't, but as long as you know that that's legitimate. But then what the main, I think the main lever that the CCP uses is through all these ties, um, basically exploiting the idea that, you know, the Chinese market is the most important thing that can be taken away from you. That's the one thing that is used by the CCP to put pressure on people. So then you have, you know, all those ties and maybe you learn that your local city X wants to do an event with a Taiwanese speaker and then you give a call. And then first maybe you're nice and you tell them, well, wouldn't that 
endanger relationships. And if that doesn't work, um, you give them another call. Maybe you give them a call at night and you put a little more emphasis on how terrible it would be if this went ahead. And personally, for you possibly as well, you might suffer your consequences. So, you know, you have all these ties and down to like very minute levels. I think levels where most Western governments don't engage or don't engage systematically. And then you use threats, either personal threats or threats of cutting someone off from the Chinese market or cutting someone off from China to get them to fall in line and do what the party wants them to do. And I think that in essence is is why it's you can refer to it as sharp power. It's really throwing your weight around quite a bit and making threats and putting pressure on people. So to kind of go down this rabbit hole a little farther, in your book, you say China is increasingly changing us and Western businesses are Beijing's decisive weapon. So you just kind of mentioned how it's the economic power that's able to give China its influence over the West. Is it, is it really like a sense of greed that corporations, universities, and even non-governmental organizations sometimes are influenced by China, or does ideology play some kind of role? It's not so much greed and ideology, but more greed and ignorance and a strong incentive, a strong monetary incentive to stay ignorant. Um, I do think ideology plays a role in some regards, like you do have Western organizations that explicitly um, support the CCP because they say it is an anti-imperialist organization that is beating down American imperialists everywhere. And we like that. And you have the old, you have the old Marxists, you have the old Stalinists that kind of see China as the last place where their ideas have some credence, but that plays by and large so far that plays a minor role because that's not usually the mainstream of things. In the mainstream, I really think it's wanting to have access to the Chinese market. Even if your overall dependence as a country is not that large, you still want to be in there. Like as a company, for the longest time, the idea was you cannot not be on the Chinese market. So you have to do everything to gain access to that market. So it's one, it's dependence, but it's also the perception of dependence and wanting to make more money. Like if you look at the, the dependence of European countries on the Chinese market is actually not that large. It's far lower than Taiwan's, which can stand up much better. It's way lower than New Zealand's and Australia's. But the idea is, you know, we can't not be there. So part of this really is perception. And if you were to lose access, that would hurt some players. But as a whole, most countries would probably be fine. So it's also the psychological game of wanting to have that access. And then, of course, once you go to the university level and to the civil society level, I think, yes, wanting access and greed plays a role. The whole idea that, you know, international exchange is good and we need to do more of it. And that's theoretically all true. It's just bad if you have this mismatch between what you want and what the other side wants. And if you go in there with this naive attitude that every person that you're going to meet in China is going to share your ideals about, you know, how science and academia is universal and there is no such thing as national boundaries in science and academia, which may be true for some of the academics, but it's definitely not true for the Communist Party associated heads of universities, right? They have other things in mind. And then, of course, as I already indicated, there is quite a bit of an incentive to not look too closely. Because once you do look closely and you do see some of the problems, you might have to discontinue something that you've just set up. 
and who likes to kill their own initiative? Nobody likes to kill their own baby that they've just set up this project. Perhaps their salary depends on this project, you know? So there's really this huge disincentive once you've set something up to shut it down and to say, no, the other side crossed the red line. So now we can no longer continue this thing. Many people, I think, would rather not think too much about some of these issues so that they can continue what they're already doing. Your book is full of examples of how China is able to influence the West. But China has its own issues with corruption, especially at the local level. Do other nations take advantage of China in a similar way that China has taken advantage of the United States and other countries? I don't want to rule it out entirely. I don't want to say that no foreign corporation has ever had any impact on any policy at some level in China. I do think it's rare because the entire political system works quite differently and because you know you don't have a lobbying apparatus that you would go through. You don't have that many ways to work bottom up to affect anything other than an ad hoc change or what you can get. I guess what you used to be able to get as Western corporations was like an ad hoc permission to do something. But what that doesn't do is change the rules. So you may get a license to do something that other people don't get lobby very intensely at the local level or at some level where you haven't. And you might get that. Many Western media organizations used to try that to get a foot into the door to establish a media presence in China. And ultimately they failed with that. They still can't have that. But in that way, they did try. And I'm sure in some cases and some smaller cases, they were successful. But all you get is this ad hoc thing that what you're doing here right now is okay for as long as we say it's okay. It's okay until it's no longer okay. And that's just not something you can work with. So you're not getting a change in the rules. And that I think is, is essentially the problem what a lot of what a lot of companies are dealing with when they try to establish their practice in China. In terms of corruption, honestly, if you're a foreign company in China right now and you're engaging in corrupt practices because people tell you that's what everybody does, so you should do it too, or those are the rules of the games, that's really stupid. Because even though, yeah, some of your competitors may be getting away with that. But you as a foreign enterprise or as a foreign owned enterprise, different rules apply and you should not, you should not risk it. So I really, I, I cannot recommend that at all, um, especially under the current circumstances. So I really think what you can do is really quite limited. So China is able to exert its influence through economic power. One of the paths that Xi Jinping has brought about that's able to capitalize on that economic power is the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI. Can you explain a little bit about the BRI and how it differs from some of the parallel institutions that have long time existed in the West, such as the World Bank, that also provide loans for development mm -hmm. assistance? Right. The BRI is a much larger umbrella. Um, and this is kind of how policymaking works in China. The government puts out a new policy or a new policy slogan. And then the idea is that everybody can then get their little projects, old projects, new projects under that umbrella and try to reframe it as a Belt and Road project. And that's why it's this expansive project 
That includes everything from, you know, financing infrastructure to 5G, to technology, the, the digital belt and road, the cultural belt and road, the people to people exchanges, because essentially the government puts out the slogan and then everybody tries to get their project under this umbrella and to get get to reframe it as belt and road. So from the outset, it's a lot bigger. A lot of times people say, well, if China gives a loan to someone, that is often the only money they can get because other people wouldn't finance it. Well, that usually has a reason. <laughs> if nobody else wants to give you money, that's usually because the project perhaps is not economical. So then you have the problem that you have a project that is being financed through maybe a BRI loan, which BRI loans are pretty intransparent. There's a lot we don't know about them other than that conditions aren't terribly good, that the, the rates that people pay are, are fairly high, a lot higher than what they would pay in a lot of other places. And that, then you have this project that's not economical, and you still have to pay back the Chinese side, even though you're not actually getting the money that perhaps you were hoping to get from this project, which I think the whole the whole debate we've had about the, the debt trap diplomacy it's a little overblown because I do think it's not quite as strategic. I think a lot of this is more haphazard. And it's not that there's like some central force in China sitting there. And it's like, ha ha ha, now we're going to entrap this country. And this is how we're going to do it. And there is the central master plan. No, that's not how it works. But it does end up because of the circumstance and because of how these loans work. And because as far as we can tell, they, they may actually end up financing projects that are not viable. This can often be the outcome. And that's a problem. Obviously, people refer to the instance in Sri Lanka where China seized, I think it was a port. It sounds like that China recognizes that that was a mistake now because of all the blowback. I do agree with you that the political implications and the strategic implications are sometimes overblown, especially in terms of a debt trap that they're not looking to just seize assets around the world because to some degree that would undermine their role as a leader or an advocate of the developing world, which is what they're hoping to use to kind of offset the, the Western power, I would imagine. Right. And that doesn't make, I mean, the fact that there is no strategic, no absolute master plan that is being executed step by step doesn't make it right. You still have all the problems. You still have the problem that a lot of what is being built is being built by Chinese companies. Because of course, the idea, some of the idea behind the Belt and Road Initiative is of course, you know, you've built a bunch of bridges and a bunch of roads in China. Maybe we should stop building roads in China, but we still have to generate, we still have to get those companies jobs. So why don't you go build those roads elsewhere? But then when you have a Chinese company building it, you have, you know, Chinese people flown in to build it. That's obviously not terribly great for the local economy. No, it, it's kind of the opposite of Keynes's idea of borrowing money to build infrastructure. You're hoping the infrastructure itself is able to grow the economy because China is the one who's getting the benefit of creating jobs for, for the Chinese. Right. The jobs exactly. aren't being created exactly. domestically. Exactly. So I'd like to know a little bit about the Confucius Institute because you write quite a bit about it. I'd like to get your thoughts in terms of how the Confucius Institutes are able to influence American academia. Right. I think Confucius Institutes 
shouldn't really have a large presence at universities because they are one more inroad to put pressure on universities. They are, you know, they come with some money. Usually once you've got one, you don't want to, you don't want to cut those, that money and they can be used and they quite frequently are used to shut down other speakers, to prevent certain topics from being discussed, to push pressure on the host university. If you go ahead and invite the speaker, then, you know, why would you want to risk our good relations that we have? But I do, I, I do want to emphasize that Confucius Institutes are not the only way to do that. If we only focus on Confucius Institutes as like the single corrupting factor at Western universities through which China gets a foot in the door, I think that's wrong. You can also have direct intervention of someone picking up the phone and calling the university and saying, you know, if you if you allow this research to go ahead or if we allow this, this um, project to go ahead, this talk to go ahead, why would you risk your good relations with us? You have a campus in China. You have this research corporation with Chinese academics. You have this and that. Why would you want to risk that? Why would you want to aggravate Chinese students on campus? Um, you know, you can have pressure through many ways and simply shutting down Confucius Institutes isn't going to make that go away. The structural dependence is a lot larger than that. And go the, the pressure can be exerted through many more channels. It's easy for Americans to feel that academia is is the last vestige of fighting off authoritarian ideas. It would be the last place that China or any nation would be able to have influence. But it's interesting because the history of of academia shows that it's very susceptible to to being directed in different ways. I was reading through E.B. White a few months back, and he was writing about how academic institutions were being influenced by McCarthyism and the Red Scare, and they were firing all kinds of different people that were aligned with the Communist Party. I found it interesting that it was Eisenhower who actually stood up to it as president of Columbia. E.B. White writes, President Eisenhower has come out with a more solid suggestion and has stated firmly that Columbia, while admiring one idea, will examine all ideas. He seems to have the best grasp of where the strength of America lies. I find it interesting that it takes a, a figure like, like Eisenhower before his presidency to be able to stand up to McCarthyism. And I think that we're facing the same thing today where it takes strong academic presidents now to stand up because so many of them are willing to be pushed, pushed around by different influences and interests, you know, that, that are monetary or, or otherwise. I agree. I mean, it takes strong presidents, strong administrators in general, strong people at every single level. And that's essentially the problem that we need to solve. And I mean, I don't have, there's no silver bullet here. I can't give you the perfect solution, but a lot of the costs right now, we have a lot of individual decisions. If you were to codify some of that, you have codes of ethics for a lot of fields. You have one in medicine, you have one in science, you have codes of ethics for everything. Why can't we have a code of ethics for dealing with authoritarian countries? But, you know, you have a consensus that this is how we professionally deal with this. And this will be difficult to establish because, again, it goes against the self-interest of so many universities. But ultimately, you need to reduce the cost 
I'm an individual decision maker that will have to justify that decision towards everybody, especially if they end up losing money. So I think that that really is where we need to work on establishing codes of conduct. What are the proper rules of behavior there? And there are still going to be people who are not going to stick with that. But then at least you can measure them against those standards and can say, look, here's what we usually do. You didn't do that. Why? Some of that burden falls on junior faculty. And actually, in, I feel like in the China field, it's often actually junior faculty that stand up. I'm not saying that tenure professors don't do anything, but quite often it is junior people and they really can get in trouble for that. They can have problems for that. And, and I really admire the people that do stand up. But they, they need this institutional backing of established codes of conduct for how to deal with authoritarian countries. And I think that is really an important next step, next step that we're going to need to tackle if we want to come find a way of continuing to deal with countries like China if we don't want to completely cut all ties, which I don't think we should. We need to find a way to institutionalize how to interact in these situations. These examples make China sound very much like a rogue nation. And in a lot of ways, it does have you know parallels with Russia, where they both vote with each other at the UN. I had Alexander Cooley and Daniel Nexum on very early into my podcast, and they mentioned how China and Russia very much have have supported each other in international relations. But there, there seems to be a huge difference in how they approach things, where Russia very much wants to undermine the international order. China has embraced a role within many international institutions and has even looked for opportunities to take on a leadership role within them. I started out this the past three episodes with an interview with um, with John Eikenberry, who talked about the liberal international order. I, I'd like to get your thoughts as China becomes involved and becomes a member of many of these international institutions, and as China's power grows within them. How does China want to reshape it? I think it'll really depend on the institutions, right? There may be some that could work quite well for China the way that they are, then there are others like the UN Human Rights Council and the other the human rights reviews at the UN, where it's pretty clear that China is taking on those roles in those bodies to destroy them from within and to make them completely useless and to make the entire process a farce. And I think that's what we're seeing there. In other bodies, such as, you know, for standardization, that, that may actually be something that the Chinese government can use and that does it doesn't necessarily need to destroy from within so how how these will be reshaped and used will really depend on what the body in question is how useful it can be to the ccp or how dangerous it is to the ccp in its current or previous form and that'll determine how the ccp will try to reshape them and again i agree on the surface with the idea that you know russia destroys china tries to use but again if the ccp tries to destroy something from within the result's quite similar it's actually worse because it, it can be a lot more effective right so i do think there are certain things that the CCP is trying to get rid of. And a lot of what the CCP is trying to get rid of is the binding nature of international agreements, of international treaties, of anything to make it, the idea is you can't really make it binding, at least not for us. And of course, you can argue how it's always been difficult to force anything binding on any great power. 
I, I guess the line that is often being pushed by the Chinese government is those were sovereign nations and you shouldn't even try to make anything binding to begin with. And that, of course, runs counter to a lot of institutions we have, to a lot of goals that we're pursuing in the, in the field of climate. Now, of course, in the field of climate, Xi Jinping has come out and said, in very vague terms, has committed China to certain goals. It's very difficult to really comment on that because it's so vague and it's so far away that it becomes, unless it's followed up on, it becomes quite meaningless. But by and large, China is not in favor of governments being for themselves, having to commit to anything binding. And I think this is another thing where, again, this is not like China is not the only country that is opposed to that, but certainly a strong country in favor of fewer binding targets imposed through international institutions and organizations. Sure. And I do agree that China's destructing some of those institutions from within and has a negative impact on many of those liberal institutions. But at the same time, it's also becoming a larger and larger contributor to others. The WHO is one example where Trump pulled out of the WHO. China is leaning into it. There's uh, China's obviously a member of the WTO, which we, we can have all kinds of conversations about what that means. But the United States, as it took on a hegemonic role over, over the world from Britain, shifted the international order from one of being an imperial international order to being something more of a liberal international order. Do you have any sense in terms of what a China-led international order would be like, or, or even if it's not truly a hegemonic power, but if it, as it has greater and greater power and draws even with the United States, what exactly the international order would look like if um, moving down the road that we're going down right now? Right. So I think when you discuss that with people, you have those two, two competing ideas. One is that, you know, China wants to replace the United States and wants to replace the exact same role that the wants to play the exact same role that the United States has played after the Second World War and kind of become, you know, the world's policeman and to be involved here and there and to now have their boats, their military boats uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, wherever, um, on a regular basis. And I, I, I think to some degree, you can make a point for that, that, you know, the United States, certainly the reference model for a lot of the ambitions that the CCP has and, you know, to be number one would be great and that might entail certain expectations. But I do think by and large, it's going to look quite different and China does not really have an interest in taking up the the role the United States has played especially when it comes to the more positive side effects i mean obviously you can you can criticize a lot about the united states it's the impact it's had internationally but there are also some positive aspects of wanting to enforce certain rules and that's not something i don't see china the chinese government doing that at all you go back to the key motivator being regime security at home. So the idea really is as long as you can get all other countries to act in accordance 
with the interests of the Chinese government, of the CCP, that is fine. You don't have to be everywhere. You don't have to control everyone. You want to create a world where other countries automatically align themselves with the interests of the party and act in accordance with them, whether that be because they agree, whether that is because they see an incentive for themselves, or whether that is because, you know, they know if they don't do it, they'll get whacked on the head and they'll have a big problem. Um, but I think that's more the party is striving for, this normative power. It does, it does involve some military power as well. I'm not saying that that is not a factor at all, but I do think a China-led world would look quite different in many ways, both expected and unexpected, than what we currently have. Because again, it, it boils down to what are the party's key interests its own survival and its own thriving at home. And that's going to inform a lot of the choices that we're going to, we're going to see it making. So because the party's key interest is regime security, as opposed to the pursuit of hegemonic power per se, does China even have a, a path towards displacing the United States? I, I think of its, its ideology is very based on nationalistic um, inspirations. The Chinese dream emphasizes uh, nationalism within China and the importance of, of being Chinese. That, that's obviously not very relatable to other nations. The United States has had a much, much more inspirational ideology of liberal democracy that has been able to, to inspire many other countries, even if they don't live up to it within the United States or beyond all the time. Do you think that there's even a path towards Chinese hegemony in the future? I do think the party has hegemonic ambitions because, again, it has this ambition to restore China to greatness and to be respected in the world. And that does come along with power, economic power, some military power, a lot, a lot of normative power. So there is this hegemonic aspect to it. You often people often say, you know, you know, China can't sell its model or it's not good enough or I don't know, at least I, I do think there are attempts at least to sell its model and to say, look, the way that the West has been trying to do things or that model that it has tried to force on you, dear developing countries, that's simply wrong. It's not going to work. Why don't you try what we're doing? And to at least export that piecemeal, I do think that is an ambition. And again, even though there are reasons why you could say it's not that likely to succeed, I don't think we should completely underestimate it because that export is happening in a lot of small ways in many different corners, whether that be through technology, whether that is through advisors, whether that is through training or an increase a stronger Chinese voice. I do think you can at least create a hype for something, even though if the even though the hype may not live up to the reality, then you can definitely try and sell your model. And I think a lot of countries are, are at least on the surface, open to it because why not? I mean, why, why not try it? I wouldn't completely dismiss that idea. I also don't know that I would necessarily say that, you know, under the CCP, China doesn't have a chance to expand its influence. I think it's been expanding its influence globally quite significantly over the past couple of decades. And it's going to change a little bit now that the world is changing quite fundamentally and there's quite a lot less international travel. But I do think we can see some of those ties also being reinforced 
in the times of the pandemic with China trying to play a role in you know, vaccines and, and trying to get countries to sign on to, to Chinese initiatives. So that's definitely still something that we're going to keep seeing and that we should keep taking seriously and not underestimate because we would assume that, well, there's nothing attractive about the Chinese model, so we need not worry about it and they're gonna do themselves in, in some way or another. So I think it's, it's something to take seriously. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what does Trump get right and what does Biden need to do differently in his new administration towards China? Right. I mean, I have no idea if Trump has any understanding of what he's doing or if he's just throwing things out there. I, I think that's probably the case. He has no idea of what he's doing and why he's doing it. But he has created a space in his administration to try things differently on China and to put a lot more pressure on China and to see China to stop having this benign look at China under the CCP. So it's created room to put a lot more pressure on China. And I think that is essentially correct, whether or not what Trump's motives are here and whether it's, you know, simplistic, I'm going to throw some some tariffs at them so I can win. It has created a space where this pressure on China can happen. And in many ways, that's important because we, we say, you know, if we treat China like an enemy, it, it will become our enemy. Well, the problem is the CCP itself has had this Cold War view of the world for 30 years. So this is not a one-way street. This is not a only what how we treat China matters. This also has, you know, the CCP has agency. They do their own things. Um, so even if you keep looking at China in this very benign way, they're not going to change how they view its main competitor, the United States. So I think recognizing that, and that has happened under the Trump administration, that's been good. And I do think that a lot of the policies that the Trump administration has put in place should be continued in some form. Not everything, you can rethink trade war strategies, but I do think, especially in the human rights field, there needs to be more pressure in terms of simply no longer putting up with the asymmetry of access. Um, To continue that in some form is important. Um, My hope is, and again, I don't want to, a lot of people say, well, Biden needs to work with allies. And that is my hope that Biden will have a better chance to work with allies on this. I do think there are limits to what can be achieved, but there is definitely a better chance to work in coordination with European partners to put more pressure on China. That's the ideal scenario. It could also go in a different direction. You know, there will be a lot of pressure on both Biden as well as on European economies to push for a reset and get away from what the Trump administration has been doing. That would be kind of the worst case scenario if the Biden administration and European countries were to give in to that pressure. But if if they can continue a more strategic approach to what the Trump administration has been doing in coordination with other allies, be that in Europe or in the region, that would be the ideal scenario. The the tradition of of the literature that that your book kind of comes from, sometimes it can come across as very pessimistic that China is able to influence academia, China is able to influence businesses, China is able to influence local governments and thereby eventually influence our national government. But your book, as well as other people's articles and other books out there, do represent a sea change in how we view that that form of influence. Do you take a more pessimistic view that we're going to continue to be manipulated by the CCP? Or do you take a more optimistic view that the West is starting to wake up to that influence and starting to take 
take action and, and do reforms to be able to better react to it? I mean, it's a mixture. I'm a, I'm a pessimist, or one could say realist by nature. So I do think it's very difficult to get anything done against quite big interests, economic interests of key players in the West as well. So I do think it's, an, it's, it's very much an uphill battle. That all said, if you look at where we were four years ago or five years ago and where we are now, I think it's indisputable that there has been some progress, that there is a lot more awareness of what the problems are. And that being the first step, awareness being the first step towards solutions is, is, is great. And I welcome that. And it makes me slightly optimistic. That doesn't mean that I think everything's going to fall into place now. This is going to keep being an uphill battle is going to keep being difficult. Everything that will get done will be fought, will have been fought for very, very hard. But the awareness is there and there is an opportunity to act and to push back more and to make sure to stop what has been happening. And in that way, again, I, I, I am definitely optimistic that this is possible if enough people keep pushing in that direction. So count me in as a as a cautionary optimist, I suppose. Thank you, uh, Marika. This has been excellent conversation. And I, I look forward to seeing more of your work. Great. Thanks for having me again. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank One World Publications for a copy of hidden hand. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.